You are listening to a sermon from First Christian Church of Van Alstine, Disciples of Christ, located in Van Alstine, Texas. We pray that this message blesses you and gives you comfort and hope in Christ throughout the week. Now, please enjoy this message from Dr. Doug Bull. Good morning. During this uh, period when uh, we are dealing with the coronavirus and not able to gather as a congregation, uh, we will record a special song and a pastoral prayer as well as a message. Uh, after this week, we will do the recording on Saturday and have it uploaded so that you can um, watch during the regular worship hour on Sunday morning. Before we start with a prayer, uh, I do want to mention a couple of pastoral concerns in the life of our congregation. Ashley Tillett has been in the hospital. She's um, four months old, and um, she had a, a case of the flu. Uh, she did go home, but then again, uh, early this morning at 2 a.m., they had to take her back to the hospital because she couldn't keep any fluids down. So they started an IV, and they hope in another day or so she'll be able to go back home. So please remember uh, Aubrey Tillett and Mom and Dad Jess and Ashley. Also, I want to mention that Tom Dow was hospitalized again this week. He also is back home, but I invite you to remember Tom and Betty Dow in your prayers. And now I want to share a pastoral prayer related to the pandemic that we're all dealing with. Let us pray. Gracious God, your son traveled through towns and villages, curing every disease and illness. At his command, the sick were made well. We ask that you come to our aid now in the midst of the global spread of the coronavirus, that we too may experience your healing and your love. Heal those who are sick with the virus, we ask. May they regain their strength and health through quality medical care. Heal us from our fear, which prevents nations from working together and neighbors from helping one another. Heal us from our pride, which can make us claim invulnerability to a disease that knows no borders. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you stay by our side in this time of great uncertainty and sorrow. Be with the families of those who are sick or have died. As they worry and grieve, we ask that you guard them against despair. May they know your peace. We ask also that you be with doctors and nurses and researchers and all medical professionals who seek to heal and help those affected and who also put themselves at risk in this process. May they too know your protection and your peace. Be with the leaders of all nations. Give them the foresight to act with charity and true compassion for the well-being of the people they are meant to serve. Give them the wisdom to invest in long-term solutions that will prepare and prevent future outbreaks. May they know your peace as they work to serve others on earth. Whether we are home or abroad, surrounded by many people suffering from this illness or only a few, God, we ask that you stay with us as we endure and mourn, as we persist and prepare. And in place of our anxiety, we ask that you give us peace. Amen.
like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows
This morning I'm continuing my series of messages on Bible stories. Today is Bible stories number four, Be Like Barnabas. And the scripture passage comes from Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 28. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the disciples, and described for them how on the road Saul had seen the Lord who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So Saul went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of our Lord. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. There was a police officer who was testifying in a criminal case, um, a robbery, someone he had arrested. And the defendant had an attorney that was known for being um, hard-nosed and, and really tough on police officers. So the cross-examination of the young police officer went like this. The attorney said, you arrested my client. Did you see him steal the money? The officer said, no, I did not. Then why did you arrest him, the attorney said. The police officer said, well, my partner went in the front door and I came in the back door. My partner saw him steal the money and my partner yelled, there he goes, and pointed at him. And so I chased him and I tackled him and I arrested him. The attorney said, well, you arrested my client on the word of your partner? A police officer said, yes, I did. Yes, I did. The attorney said, you trust in the word of your partner that much that you would arrest without seeing anything? The officer said, yes, I trust my life to all of my fellow police officers. Well, with that, the attorney smiled smugly, thinking, ah, he's got the police officer right where he wants him. He said, let me ask you, sir, do you have at the police station a room where you change your clothes to be ready for your daily activities? The officer said, yes, we do. And do you have a locker in that room? The officer said, yes, I have a locker. And do you have a lock on that locker? The officer said, yes, I have a lock on that locker. The attorney said, do you lock that locker? The officer said, yes, I lock it every single day. Now the attorney smiled again, smugly, thinking he had the officer right where he wanted him. So the attorney said to the officer, you mean to tell me you trust all of your fellow officers with your life, and yet you lock your locker every single day in that room you share with them? Why do you do that? The officer thought for a moment, and then he said, well, the police station is connected to the courthouse. And so every day, from time to time, there are attorneys who walk through our locker room, and that is why we lock our lockers. <laughs> it's important when we bear testimony that we tell the truth. If someone were to bear witness about you, what would they say? Would their testimony be focused on the positive or the negative? Today, the scripture passage I read is a part of the story of Barnabas. And Barnabas, we first hear about in chapter 4 of the book of Acts. And here's the first verse that speaks about him. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Can you imagine 
having the disciples give you the name son of encouragement or daughter of encouragement? Reminds me of a Dave Matthews song that has a lyric that goes like this. I will lean on you, and you will lean on me, and we will be okay. That is the spirit that people saw in Barnabas. That's what it means to be a son or daughter of encouragement. Encouragement is like a rising tide that lifts all boats. The church is a place where we need encouragement. And especially in this time of great anxiety, we need to be ministers of encouragement to one another. In the book of Matthew, we read, Do not be dismayed and do not be discouraged. Go ahead and trust in God, for in God all things are possible. So what are the things that we can learn from the story of Barnabas? There are three things I want to suggest. First, an encourager is a giving person. In the book of Acts, we read these words about Barnabas. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the disciples' feet. Now Joseph, Barnabas, was a Levite. Levites were a tribe of Israel, and in this day they served as assistants to the priest. They would be doorkeepers in the temple, or musicians, or some other way assist the priest. But Joseph could not do that. He was from Cyprus, which meant he had not been born in Israel. He was a Hellenist, a name given to Israelites born overseas. So, Joseph the Levite, who the disciples gave the name Barnabas. He was considered a foreigner. The Hellenists were considered foreigners. They couldn't speak Aramaic. And they were considered to have picked up Gentile ways. For that reason, Joseph, who the disciples called Barnabas, could not serve in the temple as his people, the Levites, had done for many, many years. Now, you would think that Joseph would be sour about all that. But Joseph was a very positive guy. And he joined this new community of Christians. In fact, as I just read in the Scriptures, we learn that he sold some of the land he owned, and he gave the proceeds to help this startup community of Christians. As such, Barnabas became the first recorded donor of the Christian community. Years ago, when I was um, doing parenting workshops, I read uh, Gary Chapman's uh, book about parenting, and he identified a theory that he called the love tank theory. And he talked about it as it relates to parents and children. And his theory was that children have a love tank, and they need their parents to intentionally make deposits in that love tank. A little note of encouragement slipped in their lunch could be a deposit in their love tank. A warm hug when they are discouraged or sad. Spending time with them, doing something that brings them joy. All of these are little ways we make deposits in our child's love tank. Now, there are always times that we are going to have to make withdrawals from that love tank. We have to admonish our children from time to time. We have to discipline them. We have to correct them. 
And parents who only make withdrawals discover there's nothing in the tank. Now, I believe we can apply the theory of a love tank to all of our relationships, especially for those of us who are Christians who are called to minister to one another in a spirit of love. There are intentional things we can do to make a deposit in someone else's love tank. And that is a ministry in which we reflect the spirit of Christ's love to others. Now, Gregory of Nyssa was one of the early church fathers in the 4th century, and he actually wrote an essay about someone who lived their life like this. Here's what he wrote. At horse races, the spectators, intent on victory, shout to their favorites in the contest. From the balcony, they incite the rider to keener effort, urging the horses on while leaning forward and flailing the air with their outstretched hand instead of the whip. Now, with that picture in mind, he adds, I seem to be doing the same thing myself. Most valued friend and brother, while you are competing admirably in the divine race, straining constantly for the prize of our heavenly calling, I exhort you and I urge you and I encourage you vigorously. So Gregory is saying that he is up in the stands watching his beloved friend and encouraging them on cheering them on as they race the race of life. Some people live their life in a way that lifts up others through encouragement. I believe John Wooden was perhaps the greatest coach of any team sport in history. He coached the UCLA Bruins basketball team, and his team won 11 national championships in 13 seasons. One of the things John Wooden taught his players, whenever you make a basket, you should turn to the teammate that passed you the ball and point to them, or nod your head, or say thank you, somehow acknowledge that their good pass enabled you to make a scoring play. Well, one day in practice, one of the players said, but coach, what if he's not looking? And I point at him. And John Wooden said, I promise you, He will be looking. True. We're always looking for that affirmation, that encouragement, that lift up, that we have done a good job, whether it's a teammate, a friend, or a loved one. I was a big fan of Michael Jordan's when he played basketball. And I remember at the end of one season, one of his teammates, an older player, was retiring. And uh, after the last game, they asked this older teammate, um, what, what, what some of his great memories of playing in the NBA were. And he said, I will always remember that night that Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points. Well, Michael Jordan had scored 69 of those points on that night. And so that player was wise to attach his legacy to Michael Jordan's. The first thing we learn from Barnabas, an encouraging person is a giving person. The second thing I want to suggest, an encourager demonstrates grace. 
Now, Barnabas disappears from the Scriptures for a period of time, and we don't read of him again until the passage that I read uh, earlier uh, this morning. Saul had been terrorizing the early Christians until he encountered Jesus. And when Saul encountered Jesus, he became a follower of Christ, and he wanted to join the disciples. But the early Christians were still afraid of Saul. Saul repented, and he trusted in Jesus, and eventually he would get a new name, a Christian name. He would be called Paul. But the early Christians remembered that Saul was responsible for the stoning of their friend Stephen. And they would remember that Saul was responsible for the persecution of many of their Christian friends. So how could they trust that Saul was being sincere? How could they trust he really wanted to be a part of the community of faith and he wasn't just trying to infiltrate their group so he could inflict more harm? So Barnabas was sent to check out Saul. And Barnabas gave Saul a great gift. Grace. Saul was a threat to the early church. And then when he converted, people weren't sure. So Barnabas gave Saul a chance. He befriended Saul and he became Saul's mentor. And Barnabas was responsible for bringing Saul into the life of the church. Can you imagine what would have happened to Saul if Barnabas had not given him grace? And can you imagine how the church would have been forever changed if Saul had not been brought into the church and then became Paul, our greatest theologian? Here another scripture passage with you. You see the impact of grace in these words. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Grace often becomes a doorway for the entrance of God's Spirit. The next time we hear of Barnabas is in chapter 11, when the early church begins a mission reaching out to the Gentiles. It was a critical moment in the history of the church, and Barnabas was the one who was sent. Jules Sanders has written a story about what it was like growing up as the youngest of six children. She says uh, that her parents got divorced when she was 18 years of age, and quite frankly, her father was very distant from all six of his children. But then after a couple of years of divorce, a wonderful woman came into Jewel's father's life. And they eventually got married. And she had two sons of her own. And her spirit of love and and warmth brought the two families together so they experienced great joy as a blended family. And through the influence of this new wife, Jewel's father grew closer to all of his children. Jewel's father was married to his second wife for 25 years. And then when he passed away, They were making plans for a memorial service. And Jewel asked her stepmom if it would be okay if her mother, her dad's first wife, attended her dad's memorial service. And Jewel says she will always remember what her stepmom said to her. 
Her stepmom said, honey, of course she can attend. She is the mother of my children. That was a spirit of grace. Stepmom identifying the first wife was the mother of her now beloved stepchildren. Love and grace are cyclical. The more we give, the more we get. And thus, the more we want to give. Third thing we can learn from the story of Barnabas, an encourager promotes others. We see a a spirit of real grace as Barnabas lifts up the people around him. And that is so contradictory to the focus of so many people today. Our culture teaches us to look out for ourselves first and foremost. What do I want? What do I need? What do I desire? But Barnabas served the cause and the needs of Jesus' community. As such, he cultivated the roles of other people around him. Now, the Bible tells us that Antioch became the very first doorway for the faith to enter into the Gentile world. And Barnabas was the one who was sent to take advantage of that opportunity. And very quickly, Barnabas recognized he needed help in this new mission endeavor. He needed someone who knew the Scriptures. And he needed someone who could speak to the Gentile world. And he needed someone who had tremendous energy and courage. And he needed someone who had a sharp mind and a quick tongue. So very quickly, Barnabas recognized that Saul, now Paul, could be a great asset in this mission outreach to the Gentile world. And it's so ironic because Saul had been so immersed in Jewish traditions. No one was more zealous about the Torah than Saul. And yet Barnabas recognized in him that he had unique gifts in their mission endeavor to go out and reach the Gentile world. So Paul and Barnabas became partners in this new ministry. Now, it's interesting to recognize the shift in their partnership as time goes on. In ancient writings, the order in which names are presented will tell you who is in charge of that partnership. In Acts chapters 11 through 13, Barnabas is listed first, followed by Paul's name. But beginning in Acts chapter 14 and going forward, Paul's name is always listed first, followed by Barnabas. Now, from the perspective of our culture today, someone might say, well, Barnabas didn't do a very good job managing his career. He didn't climb that ladder of success very well. But the mission to the Gentile world was tremendously successful. And Barnabas celebrated the mission accomplishments without feeling the need to promote himself or try to take credit for what took place. Barnabas focused on the priority of doing the Lord's work. And that was all that mattered. Now, some years later, when Paul and Mark came into conflict. 
It was Barnabas who mediated this conflict. Can you picture Barnabas saying to Paul, do you remember when you needed grace? Is there anyone in the life of the church who has needed more grace than you, Paul, who used to be Saul, the persecutor? So now, young Mark needs grace. So, Paul, you're the perfect one to give it to him. And Barnabas' spirit of encouragement brought them back together. I want to read something that Paul wrote in his very last letter. In his last letter to Timothy, Paul wrote, Only Luke is with me. Go get Mark and bring him with you, for he is so helpful for my ministry. Years before, only Barnabas recognized the value Mark had. But now Paul embraced Mark and identified he needed Mark with him in his last days. It was the grace of Barnabas that enabled Paul to become a great leader in the church. And it was the grace of Barnabas that enabled Paul to recognize that young Mark had gifts that were needed in the ministry of God's kingdom. I want to tell you a story. The author calls it Down in the Dumps. Charlie Bowers was 10 years of age and in the third grade. And he was bigger than most of his classmates and they often made fun of him for various reasons. For one thing, his clothes were old and tattered compared to his classmates. His shoes, old tennis shoes with holes in them. But another thing that wasn't helpful for Charlie Bowers, he literally had to walk through the city dump to get from his house to the school. And he had long since blocked out the, the odor of the dump, but it would attach itself to him clo- his clothes and to his person. And the kids made fun of him. They would hold their nose when he walked close, or they would act as if they were choking from the smell. When he was younger, Charlie Bowers would punch the children who teased him mercilessly. But now in the third grade, he just seemed more down in the dumps, more melancholy, as if there was some great being sitting on his spirit. So his teacher, Mrs. Robinson, recognized this and wanted to find a way to lift up Charlie Bowers. So she asked him one day if he would like to bring his pet to school and show the class on Friday. He would be the only one that would get to show his pet on that given day. And Charlie was excited about that idea. Now Mrs. Robinson's idea might have worked very well, except that Charlie didn't bring a pet that most kids would have. He didn't bring a puppy or a kitten or even a parakeet in a cage. He set the cage on Mrs. Robinson's desk, and he pulled the towel off that had covered it, and inside that cage was a three-legged rat. And the children began to tease him and laugh at him. It was complete chaos, and it took Mrs. Robinson several minutes to get the class to settle down. 
And she admonished them to be quiet and listen to Charlie as he told the class about his pet. So Charlie introduced his pet rat to the class, the rat he had named Rhonda. He said, when I first found Rhonda, she was just a little mice, mouse, very tiny, and she got trapped in a mouse trap my dad had put behind the refrigerator. My dad was always angry, and when he saw that mouse squealing, he grabbed the mouse so roughly and pulled it that Rhonda's back leg was pulled off of her body. And then my dad went to the front door and threw Rhonda out into the dark of the night. But I snuck outside later with a flashlight. and I found Rhonda sitting on a on a a pile of leaves, and she was bleeding badly. So I took some kite string and I tied it around her leg to stop the bleeding, and I snuck her into the house, and I hid her in the top drawer of my dresser, and I would sneak food to her, and I would feed her and feed her until she was well enough to go back to her family. And so I took her back to the dump so she could live with her family. Now my father would get angry He would drink too much, and he was always angry, and he would spank me so hard, and then he would lock me in the closet. And I was in the closet one night as he had locked me in there, and I heard a noise in the walls. And here came Rhonda, and I almost didn't recognize her because she was so big and fat now, but I saw that she was missing her back leg. And after that, Every night when I was locked in the closet, Rhonda would come to visit me. She even came and gave birth to her babies right in the corner of my closet one night as I was sitting there watching it all. And that was the day that I believed that maybe another living thing could love even me. Mrs. Robinson interrupted and said, it's almost time to go to recess Charlie, is there anything else you want to tell us about Rhonda? And Charlie said, I do want to tell you, I'm not dumb, even though you think I am. And I'm not strong. And I cry a lot. I cry when you make fun of me. I cry when my mom gets drunk and forgets to feed my sisters. I cry when you laugh at me and tease me like you just did with Rhonda. But Rhonda has never done anything to hurt me. And she is my best friend in the world, and every night I thank God for sending me Rhonda. And if any of you want to come and meet Rhonda before you go to recess, you can. And Mrs. Robinson says that was the day the class changed. There were still a few that would tease Charlie, But by and large, most saw Charlie in a different way. And they admired him for his unique pet and the love he shared with Rhonda. You see, all of us get down in the dumps. And we need to be lifted. We need that spirit of love and the spirit of encouragement. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be at the memorial service for Barnabas? 
One by one, people would share stories of how their dear friend lifted them up and gave them the spirit of encouragement that they needed in a time of great despair. I want to share one last thing that an author has written. Her name is Laura Huxley, and she wrote a book called You're Not the Target. And she identifies that each one of us will make three startling discoveries in our life. First, we will discover that each one of us has the power in varying degrees to make other people feel worse or to make them feel better. Second, we all will, have the, will discover that making others feel better is far more rewarding than making them feel worse. Third, we will discover that making others feel better makes us feel better as well. Remember how Paul put it? Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more you see the day approaching. Now I ask you to bow for a closing benediction. May the grace of God, made known to us through the love of Jesus Christ, abide in us as we seek to reflect that love to others. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Christian Church of Van Alstine, Disciples of Christ. We are located in Van Alstine, Texas at 274 South Waco Street. If you would like to contact us, our office number is 903-482-5515 and email us at fccvanalstein at gmail.com. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.50 a.m., day school at 9.45 a.m. For more information, you can visit us at fccvatx.org or find us on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening, and may God bless you.